With the Department of Justice statement regarding the consent decrees, songwriters are in the news a lot right now. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Today, we're talking to two songwriters who started Sona, the Songwriters of North America, and who have sued the Department of Justice. We also talked to a platinum-selling songwriter about how she got started in the business and what she thinks about the current state of the industry for songwriters. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Kay Hanley and Michelle Lewis of Sona. Ladies, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having us. So I'm excited to talk to you guys today. You are both co-founders of the organization Sona, which is Songwriters of North America. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, we are. And this is a fairly new organization. You guys started it last year. That's right. But you guys have been in the news lately because of the Department of Justice consent decree statement that came down not that long ago that we all completely freaked out about concerning how the consent decrees. 100%. Yeah, 100% licensing and how that was going to be covered. So Sona sued the Department of Justice. That's right. Right after that happened, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And then not that long ago, a federal judge basically declared that statement unlawful. Is that correct? That's almost, almost correct. All of it is correct, except for the, the, there's one extra little piece of this, which is that it was the BMI rate court, Judge Stanton, that declared that 100% licensing was a bridge too far and that they had overshot the mark on that and they had no basis for making that ruling, but it only affects BMI. So this actually has the potential to create kind of a bigger problem because if ASCAP judge says, no, 100% licensing is great, it's going to just create even more chaos. So we're halfway there. Yeah. Is that a likelihood or do you think they're going to use precedent now because the BMI rate court has set this statement? We hope so. We hope that precedent stands and ASCAP judge goes with it because she'll know what chaos it'll throw the marketplace into. Past this prologue, but she's not <laughs> been the friendliest to songwriters in the past, so it's not a it's not a given. We can't just assume that she'll do that. Well, that's really frightening. <laughs> it is, which is what makes the Sona lawsuit even more important than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we won our suit, it would cover everyone. You know, it would mean that 100% licensing would get thrown out entirely. So that ruling would be nullified. Right. Gosh, this is... It's so complicated. It's very complicated. (laughs) We did an episode of this show on the consent decree in which we explained what it was. You know, we talked to lawyers. We talked to a lot of people who are in the industry. Good for you. Just because... It's well, it's just so hard to understand. Like you said, it's so complicated. And I feel like people need to hear this over and over because this is a really big deal. This involves everyone who has ever written a song. Exactly. If you are a songwriter, you know, even if it wasn't professionally, even if you've wrote some songs at some point in your life, but you're in, you know, a member of BMI or ASCAP, this is a big deal for you. And for people who are professional songwriters, this is gonna significantly affect 
your livelihoods. How did you come to the decision to invoke the lawsuit? We realized, I mean, I'm sure like you realized once you decided to devote a show to what the consent decrees are and what the ruling was, we realized about two years ago now that songwriters were getting sort of lousy deals in the dreaming economy. Like we were sort of getting to the short end of the stick in terms of the, how the pie was getting split up in dreaming. And it was starting to sort of affect us in real time. It was more theoretical, I think, when we first started hearing about streaming. And it was going to, you know, save the industry because it was going to make everybody pay for music again. And I think everyone was kind of like just trying to get their heads down and didn't really ask too many questions. But then about two years ago, when we started seeing the money on our statements, our ASCAP and BMI statements, that we were getting paid for that streaming, we'd see these crazy numbers, like... 17 million. million. <laughs> right, right. We see these really <laughs> high numbers, like 17 millions and billions. And then and then you see the number next to it, which is the amount you're getting, which was like $4.78. You know, it's like, well, how is this How is this being calculated? Right. So we started asking those questions of how 17 million equals $4.78. And that, all those questions that Kay and I asked led to the consent decrees. And the consent decrees are like, you know, people's eyes glaze over when you say those words because it sounds so wonky. But I make sure every songwriter knows what they are because they are so at the bottom of how we got to where we are. So we basically started discussions along with other songwriting groups and publishers with the Department of Justice. Yes, the Department of Justice run by, you know, the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, has in it an antitrust division where songwriters are regulated from. Like, basically, the antitrust division of the Department of Justice oversees 75% of the songwriters' income, regulates 75% of songwriters' income through the consent decree. And so we asked them for relief. We asked them for to take a look at them. And, you know, maybe they can grant us some modification that would allow us negotiate fairer rates in digital services. So two years ago, you know, they they opened up the consent decree. They started investigating. And two years later, after long conversations and, and lots of public comments and all this stuff, in July of this past summer, they said, no, we're not going to do anything. And since you asked, we're going to add a new regulation. Right. Which is 100% licensed. Right, which is really out of left field. I mean, that is not something that has ever been done before. That was a total, totally new thing. No right. one ever asked for it. No one ever brought it up. This is complete concoction on the part of the Department of Justice. Now, the juicy little tidbit of information here is that the head of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice is a woman named Renata Hesse, who has basically had a revolving door career between the Department of Justice and Google. And who is the biggest beneficiary of this 100% licensing scheme? Google. Because it paves the way for a much easier licensing situation for Google, the streaming services. So I don't know if you want us to describe what 100% licensing looks like, or is that too boring? Or do you want us to think? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we've done it in the past. So people can, you know, if they want to go back to the old episode and, and listen to that, I think it's probably more beneficial 
to give us your insight, since you both are professional songwriters, of what you said earlier about, you know, something that sounds so completely crazy. It's like you guys are mobsters. Like the yeah. Department yeah. of Justice controls 75% of your income. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sorry. Are you guys like gangsters of New York? <laughs> like, yes. We're like it's kind of, it's interesting because that's really where this all comes from. The right. consent decrees were enacted in 1941 because of monopolistic behavior on the part of ASCAP. This was over 75 years ago when player pianos were still a thing. The word saloon is actually mentioned in, in our consent decree. <laughs> it's like, you know, and to be honest, ASCAP at the time, they, they were, were not great them. actors. Yeah, you know, they, they really awesome. were acting in a monopolistic fashion. They controlled all of the musical works of the era. So they were, you know, there were some questions of price gouging and collusion, and the Department of Justice was right to serve ASCAP with a consent decree. But most consent decrees, in fact, almost all consent decrees end. They have a, you know, they have an expiration date. And for like, you know, they la they're basically 15 years, 20 years, that kind of thing. This one has been 75 years in counting and has no end in sight. So they're basically... The narrative of like those ASCAP thugs, which is so not even apply anymore. Like, if you've met anyone from ASCAP or if you've met any songwriters, it's funny that that's kind of a thing. That Google's being protected from us. Yeah, that Google's being protected <laughs> from us. It's hilarious. Right. But still in place. Like that narrative is still kind of what the DOJ is looking at when they're thinking about songwriters. And so... We decided at Sona that, okay, enough is enough. Like, we have to come out from behind our protective shell. Our studios. Our studios. Our and publishers. Our, right. From behind our protective shell of our publishers and our PROs, like ASCAP and BMI, and, like, wave hello to the people and come, like, we're humans. We have kids. We're small business owners. Yeah, we have, right. you know, we have, we make music for a living, and... We're not just part of this cabal, cabal of thugs. <laughs> I mean, there's, no, there's none of that that applies anymore. There's nothing that has any truth in it at all. So that's part of why we wanted to, well, the suit was because it felt like such an overreach of, and such a misappropriation of, like, justice, the word justice. So we were just like, what do we do? Like, how do we push back at this? And so that seemed like the logical step to sue the Department of Justice. Right. So that's what we did. Yeah. Almost perfect conditions. What will we feel like when hours have gone by? Wait for your instructions. See what you look like. Make friends under blue lights. Our cars are ambiance. Love them like one of us. Fevers and canker sores. I'll take your temperature. Oh, you're almost seven.
That was Ode to the Go-Kart by Dirt Bike Annie. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Kay Hanley and Michelle Lewis of Sona. So what are the next steps now? What are we, because in my previous episode, we had talked about the statement was sort of a non-binding statement from the Department of Justice for a year. So it would be like next August or September that something that would become binding. But what do you see happening between now and then, now that this one federal judge has issued his statement about BMI? First of all, I'm not really supposed to talk about our case specifically, but we can sort of say what everybody knows, which right. is that several things can happen. The ASCAP judge can either say yay or nay, and then ASCAP, but the ASCAP but the judge has like 60 days to make a ruling. And then also the Department of Justice can appeal, can appeal the BMI ruling or whatever ruling ASCAP makes which it looks like they're going to do, thus, like, prolonging the crazy and the deflection of all of this. Oh, that's nuts. You know, like, it's just such a, yeah, it's totally nuts. So, obviously, if Judge Coates, that's the ASCAP judge, if she rules along with Stanton and DOJ doesn't appeal, then we close our case and we're, like, back to the status quo, which wasn't awesome, but at least we're not going to, we know how to operate. We know how to operate. Right. It doesn't completely kill your ability to, oh, I I mean, there were so many problems with that 100% licensing ruling that we don't even need to go into it. Right, right. So at least we go back to how it was and we can sort of work with that. Then the other possibilities are if then the DOJ appeals, then our case becomes more important than ever, or if the code rules against the judge stand-in, then we have to rethink everything. So we're kind of waiting. Yeah, It's a waiting game. So let's talk for a second about you guys are professional songwriters. You make your money from songwriting. And you started this interview by talking about how you got these royalty statements that showed these crazy numbers that make no sense. Where do you think our opportunities for change are in that situation, in that scenario? I mean, basically, are we all at the mercy of Spotify to just pay us however they want? How could this change, ideally, in your view? Well, there are a couple of things that can change. I mean, the stuff that has nothing to do with the consent decrees, which is doing away with freemium and making sure that everyone is subscribing. Once that, you know, there's the top of the waterfall argument. When there are enough subscribers, when there are enough people paying, and there's all that money at the top of the waterfall, the idea is that it will trickle down. And more listeners subscribing, obviously, means more listeners streaming. And that means more money for songwriters and artists. But our problem is that even the multiplier has to be so huge to even make a dent. You know, our rates are fractional, fractions of pennies per stream. Yeah. Right? So we are talking like 0.000 something, you know, right. in each different service. So to get to the place where you make over 100 bucks, you have to have like a billion streams. So it's it's the case, right? It's the combination of the top of the waterfall and right, the bottom right. of the waterfall. Scaling, like scale, which is where, you know, everybody's streaming and paying for it. But then also readjusting the rate so that it's a more equitable split between, and you guys, have you spoken about like the sound recording and the copyright? Have you kind of gotten into the difference? 
Yeah, I feel like everything can always be repeated because this, you know, I always say on this show that the history of the music industry is this patchwork of regulations that has led us to this place that we're in today that's just so crazy. It's like, why is, you know, why is it like this? And we're like, well, do you have 45 minutes? You know, yeah, (laughs) it's going to take us a while to explain this. But, you know, I, I think what's also interesting is that songwriters often operate under blanket licenses. So you guys don't necessarily have the option of negotiating your own rates. No. So that's another aspect of this that I think is interesting to people because, you know, we complain a lot. I would say probably the biggest bad guy right now is is YouTube and Google. Thank you. Right. Because the idea with YouTube is not only do we not get consent, we don't get a choice whether our music gets put up there, but we also don't get to negotiate a rate because it's completely opaque. Like, why do they pay us the fractions of pennies that they pay us? We don't know. That's just the rate. Like, that's what they do. Like, we get a statement and that's what it says. But you guys, songwriters are in sort of a different boat because it's like you're not even used to the option of negotiating. Right. Exactly. No, it's true. It's all done through, like, collective rights management, which is done by RPROs. And you know, with the rate with terrestrial radio, it's actually still in a pretty healthy place. I mean, it's the same with cable and television too, where you know, for your performance world, like for your performances, which means when something that you wrote is performed on any kind of public medium like radio or television, you get a little royalty, you get a little piece, and that you know, whatever that, that rate has been with historically with between TV and radio, it's a living. It's that's a, that's like a and that's why, like, single people who write hits, you know, can make so much bank, right? There's definitely, like, a lottery right. sort of element of course, to that, yeah. like, having a hit. If we fast forward into the future where terrestrial radio is now all digital and TV is all streamed, there's no way to make a living. Right. No, there's, it was, we things stand now, there's no, there's not even a possibility. Even, the, yeah. even like, Max Martin couldn't get by on on what he would make from just digital. So that's got to be, I mean, if you're talking at like, the, you're looking at the one percenters who you can't make any kind of claims that they're not putting out great work and people don't want it, that that's the problem. If they can't survive on this, on what's rated right now, it's going to kill off our industry. Like, it's there's no, there's nothing at the end for us. And I can't imagine how that's the end game of, Google or YouTube or Spotify. Like, I can't imagine that they ultimately want to kill off the people who create what they were. Right, their <laughs> worth. To answer your question, either we work, either they sort of understand the value of the people that create the work that bring value to their platforms, or they're going to suffer. Like, they're not going to survive it. This is the existential and philosophical moment that we're all constantly talking about because the the question really ends up being, you know, we have an issue in this industry because in the early days of a musician or a songwriter or a band's life, they're desperate for publicity. They're desperate to have people sure. pay attention to them and listen to them. So there's so many people out there who are willing to give away their music for free just for the exposure right. Yeah, that it creates a problematic distinction, which before the digital age, we didn't really have because the thing was, it was like quality rose to the top. You know, the really good bands got picked by labels. Their albums came out. People bought it. It was on the radio, et cetera. You can make a living. 
you know, equals songwriters having careers. Nowadays, it's like the whole marketplace has become a tech marketplace where the tech part is the actually important part. And we just did an episode on this, which is really scary. The end game for the tech companies is the data mining. They don't care whether you guys, they just want the the statistics and the data from the people who are downloading or listening or whatevering. So they don't care the quality of the work. You know, they don't care whether the music that people are listening to is any good. It's so interesting you bring this up because Kay is going, I've been working in television and, you know, Michelle and I do a lot of music for TV and film and we're composers for Doc McStuffins and, and other children's shows and animation and stuff like that. But I started my career in a band called Letters to Cleo. And I haven't really been doing the artist thing for, I haven't released a record in a long time. Fast forward to next week, Letters to Cleo is releasing its first record in 17 years. And we're going on the road. And all of a sudden, it's like, the now I've been doing advocacy on this stuff for almost two years now. <laughs> and, and we, you know, the, the publicity person emailed and said, like, platform that will not be named wants to, you know, premiere the... Anyway, actually, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details about it, but suffice it to say, everything that's happening right now, like Team Coco just premiered the record, and it's up on SoundCloud, and then there's all stuff that we have, and it's just like, oh my gosh, how you promote a record? This is how you... Like, I had no idea, and I don't even know how to feel about it as an art like it's it's opening up this whole pandora's box for Funny me and <laughs> it's opening a whole new thing for me in my head about like where is this going what what is my voice in this how do i feel about it what, you know how can i use this to start a conversation it's a pretty crazy position to be in right cuz it's not just 18 year olds who live in their parents houses starting new bands that are using Spotify and Pandora to promote their stuff. It's it's everybody. It's really, it's kind of, this is how you do it. This is now part of the process. I really appreciate you guys. This is so great. And now that I know all about this, I want to have you guys on in the future because I think we're going to really want to follow up with this issue and see how the lawsuit goes and see how the ASCAP ruling comes down. It's very exciting and frightening times. Yeah, it's pretty punk rock to sue the government, but right now it's not so punk rock because we're just waiting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is the boring part of punk. (laughs) Well, Michelle Lewis and Kay Hanley are songwriters and co-founders of Sona. Ladies, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you so much. In an update, the DOJ has appealed the judge's decision which overturned their statement. So there's more to come on this topic. Stay tuned to The Future of What to hear more about this as it unfolds.
That was If It's Not Grounded, Then It's Not Dead by Thoroughbred. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to songwriter Sue Ennis. Welcome to The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. It's really great. I'm looking forward to our (laughs) chat. So I thought that you were the absolute perfect person to do this because you have written over 70 songs with the band Heart, and you have, what, 10 gold, 4 platinum, 1 triple platinum, and 1 quintuple platinum album. So that (laughs) is, you know, that's just not nothing (laughs) for a songwriter. That's pretty good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like I was super lucky to be able to work with basically my best friends. My lifelong friends were still super close, and uh, it was just an incredibly fun experience. And kind of in the heyday of the music industry, when things were... When, you know, it was a golden time, we'll put it that way. Why don't you tell us, tell us about the golden time. Tell us what it was like for you to be a songwriter and how that worked, just in general. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit about how lucky I was to get into this. I was really on a different path. I was headed for, I guess, academia. I I was really somebody who loved words, so I got a degree in English lit, and then I went off on a crazy path and went into German lit and got my MA and was kind of heading for probably a university career teaching. And when I was a lonely teenager in Seattle, I was lucky enough to meet the Wilson sisters. And they saved me in so many ways from being a cast-aside, lonely person. But also, they taught me all kinds of great chords on my neglected little guitar. And we, through our friendship and really our incredible fandom for music, you know, just wanted to just do music all the time, every moment we were together, to play other people's songs and then start to write songs. So we had a long, you know, history of deep, close friendship and also really collaborating on fun little songs that we put together. And then they went off. I went off to the university and they went off to really work super hard and get signed. And you just can't imagine how hard those guys worked to build the right band and to find the right team to help them. And so we kind of fast forward through them having, you know, a couple of very big albums, and they were definitely, you know, on the charts and and a sort of a going concern at that time. People were interested in what the next thing was. And they came to my little apartment in Berkeley one day in their their limo and <laughs> they got out and they had this big hair and these beautiful leather jackets and I I, I just started laughing I'm, you know they just really it, I just thought it was so funny that they they had and they go I know we have to do this you know and I said I, okay I I still see you in there but it was it was this beautiful afternoon where they they said you know we've been on the road for nine months and the record label I think it was Epic at the time once a finished album from us in three months, that's our deadline, and we have not started writing because we don't write songs on the road very easily. And so they showed me a little song they had been working on and said, you know, we don't know exactly where this goes, and do you have any ideas? And we sang it and sang it. And put together a sweet little song that really they had started called Dog and Butterfly. And by the end of the afternoon, we were all so kind of giddy from just, the fun of being together and doing music and feeling kind of happy with what we'd come up with that I think we just thought we just have to always do this. And they said in a very sort of, I don't know, humble way, they go, do you mind if we put your name on this as a writer? And 
I said, I, I guess so. I don't, I don't have to. And you know, I just, I didn't know. I didn't, they said, no, no, let's do it. So they went back to Seattle and showed the song to the producer and the guys in the band. And I think the guys in the band were, you know, not totally enamored of this little folky type song with a story. It didn't really rock, but the producer was. And, and so he sent them back to me the next weekend and <laughs> they came back to San Francisco. And, and there I was in my crummy little apartment and this limo came and picked me up and, you know, took me to this fantastic hotel on Knob Hill called the Mark Hopkins. And we were in the penthouse suite. And of course, these were the days of, oh you know, gosh. gigantic advances yeah. from the label. And, you know, it, looking back, I'm embarrassed to even tell this story because it sounds so indulgent and over, 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 you know, just too much, too much, too inflated. But it was really fun. And we would stay in the, in the hotel all weekend and have room service and write our heads off and laugh and play guitars and come out with a, a song or two at the end. And they'd take it back to Seattle. And, and so that in that way is the, the first record I worked on with them was the Dog and Butterfly record that sold 3 million copies. And wow. I know. And I feel, I mean, the luck part of it was that I always had this image of me sort of, you know, here comes this speeding locomotive train coming at me down the tracks. I'm sort of standing by the side, you know, with my thumb out. This is the heart train. And Anna Nance, you know, sort of leaned out and grabbed my arm and pulled me on board. And <laughs> and I rode that train. You know, I guess in my defense, I did write a bunch of songs too, but that was the lucky part. You know, I got swept up into something that was already going. And it was an, an incredibly wonderful time to be writing with your best friends. Obviously, that story is a wonderful and incredible story that could really have only happened for a few years at a time, you know, a, a time when a re those record labels had tons of money and, like you said, gave huge advances. But the, the heart of the story is the same heart, haha. But, you know, <laughs> the heart of the story is the same. It's friends writing together, and you could have done that anywhere. It didn't have to be a fancy hotel room, and you would have come out with the same stuff because that's what songwriters do. You know, they create together, and, and that's what you guys were doing. At some point, though, however, the, the fantasy part must have taken a backseat to reality. Someone must have signed you up for either ASCAP or BMI or another one of the PROs, right? I mean, at some point, you got official, right? You became a, a true songwriter. I did. And again, in the, in the early days, I didn't know much about any of the, the things I needed to do, you know, to sort of be a business person. And their team was really kind to me as a, I think they felt that I was bringing something to the heart camp. And so they, you know, said, here's ASCAP and BMI. And you t talk to these people. And at that time, it, well, all the time, actually, uh, Anna and Nancy have been with ASCAP, and they made me a nice little offer and with an advance, which I don't even know if they do anymore. Oh, but wow. um, yeah, I've never heard yeah, of that. But <laughs> I know. Well, I guess they felt that you know they would they would see the advance returned at some point, just because I was working with a band that was probably going to sell some records. Who knew how many? But or at least get some airplay with that major label push behind them. And so, Definitely. so you know, anyway, I d yes, I did. I, I, I joined ASCAP. And then with the second album I wrote on, they gave me publishing. And so I was a publisher. And so started my, you know, started a business for real. Right. 
Yeah. So then you actually started to get into the business side. So Mm -hmm. you, because that's the ultimate thing that I hope everybody takes away from this show when they listen to the show is that being a musician is a wonderful thing, but you have to also be a business person. There has to be a business aspect to it. And if it's not you doing it, you've got to have someone in your camp who's taking care of that because really this is what we're talking about ultimately at the end of the day is people making a living doing what they love. And, you know, you can't Mm -hmm. leave that part to chance. You have to actually do the business side. So I assume at some point you did get into that and and start understanding that that was where your money was coming from. I did. I got into it in in a really, in a real, I was curious about it. It wasn't a turnoff to me at all. Some people I know just go, yeah, you know, let's just get a manager and maybe they can take care of it. But I wanted to know kind of how that worked. And I have to say, I excelled in that. I liked it. I had the brain for it. And I could pretty soon I could start to talk about publishing companies in a way where I really surpassed my co-writers. You know, I just, I'd say, you know, what about a publishing advance or what about our publishing and how are those, these splits going to work? And they'd sort of look at me blankly and go, I don't know, just talk to, talk to Ken, our manager, you know, <laughs> you guys, come on. So they were a little bit sheltered, but I had to, I felt that I had to do it since I didn't have a manager. I didn't have a team working for me or a record label eager to see my success at all. So I have been self-employed, basically, you know, an independent songwriter throughout my career. So it was, it was essential that I get those basics under my belt and be able to kind of speak the language of business. So in the early days when you were first writing and you had that first, the Dog and Butterfly album, obviously you were going to make some royalties off of record sales, correct? Yes, that's right. And then, of course, also uh, songwriters receive performance royalties from terrestrial radio play, which we know that is not given to the master recording. So, so artists don't get money from terrestrial radio play, but songwriters do. So you probably saw some money from that mm-hmm. and then from publishing. That's right. And nowadays, things have changed so much. They sure have. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you're teaching, you know, your songwriting classes and you're talking to young artists, you know, what do you tell them about how things have changed? Well, you know, Portia, I don't have a very happy spiel. I don't think it's a spiel. I don't, I don't have much to say in terms of, you know, I teach a songwriting class at community college here in Seattle, and I just love my students. And I have a number of them, you know, really want to be artists as well as writers, but there's some who want to be writers. You know, the career that I have been lucky enough to have, not a non-performing songwriter, mm-hmm. and to you know, almost in the mode of maybe how it was way, way back when in the Brill Building days with Carol King and some of the other writers. Who, well, Carol became a performer, but others who really didn't, they were behind the scenes writers. There's a lot of those people writing in Nashville these mm-hmm. days. Sure. But the bulk of my income for my career came from those record sales and and also airplay. I was lucky enough to have some singles on the radio. But there's no money now for record sales for writers. There really is, you know, there's it's pennies. And then when we look at streaming, you know, a similar situation. And so, so much of that has dried up. And I think for the people who would like to do that, who love songwriting as I do, but feel that they'd like to, they'd like to write for other people, for other voices, for different kinds of genres. I think you can with enough, I guess, effort and imagination cobble together a career now 
And I have some thoughts on that, but it takes a, it, it, you have to be clever and you have to go after it really hard and be flexible for any gigs that might come your way. You know, you don't have the income from a live show, which is where, of course, most, most artists are getting, supporting themselves. That was Porcelain Throne by Two-Ton Boa. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to songwriter Sue Ennis. So I think one of the curses of the music business is that we are this business, much like the movie business, right, where there's just so many fantasy scenarios that that young artists can get into their heads and think, oh, that's what I'm going to do, and that's going to work for me. You know, there's these things that we know are actually very difficult to achieve or find, Mm -hmm. but that seem like something they can do. And so I'm thinking about in the world, the songwriting world of today, you know, you're looking at, look at the top 40 singles by people like Drake and Beyonce and Lady Gaga, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at their album liner notes and those songs are written by like 20 people. I know. They've got these huge songwriting teams. And I I fear that that young writers today will say, well, I'm just going to become one of those people, one of those people who writes the hit songs, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the rest of the songwriters who don't write the hit songs. 
And I just, I wondered if you had any thoughts on on that scenario. I do. I saw, a, I think it, it probably, I think it might have been a hip-hop song that had 19 writers on it. <laughs> and I just couldn't, I mean, certainly they didn't all sit in the same room. You'd need a big room, you know, and, and write the song. <laughs> you know, probably some of that was sampling and giving, you know, giving other earlier writers a piece of the songwriting credit. But that's a lot of songwriters. A friend of mine told me that the top, 40, maybe it was the top 30 songs, there is not a single name as a writer on the Billboard charts. Almost all of those hits, well, I mean, basically all of them are, are team written, they're co-written. And that even includes people like Ed Sheeran, who has people who write with him, whether they're actually listed or not, you know, maybe some ghost writers. Nothing against that, but you'd think of him as a singular voice, you know, a guy with a guitar. Sure. So, you know, the co-write is, is, has become a really big deal, especially when competing for, you know, chart success. If that's something that you want to go for, then I think you have to develop quite different skills than you do if you have a more personal voice. And that's not really the kind of music that you make. I would say those skills are in the, in the, and, and oh, it's so competitive, the highly charged competitive world of getting a top chart hit. I would say that you should understand what your strengths are and you kind of know them after you've written a bunch of songs. You can see, you know, I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty great at putting some chords together and I love melody, but lyrics are not my strong suit or lyrics absolutely are my strong suit. And so you kind of, I guess you pigeonhole yourself a little bit, but you identify what your expertise is, and then you can team up and you can bring a certain thing that that team is looking for that they don't really have covered. And, you know, in that way, you can perhaps create a place for yourself in songwriting teams. I had an interesting experience. I had never really written with, well, that I, I, I love collaborating and I've, I've written with different people, but usually in my songwriting sessions, I'm used to it being fairly mellow and nothing too, I guess, charged up and focused and, and results oriented. It's like, let's see where where we go. It's great to come prepared, but let's let's drift with where the song takes us. So I had an opportunity to to co-write with a couple of brothers who were in the I guess you'd say Americana and country world in in Atlanta a few years ago and they're just great. A guy named Christian Bush who's the, and his brother sweet guys and very very successful. But I oh my gosh, I had never been in such a for me, I felt so out of my depth. They, you know, it was it wasn't you know where you come in and you have coffee and you chat about how how things are going and then you say, well, let's let's get to writing, you guys. No, I mean Christian burst in the door of their little project studio where I was waiting and already had an idea going, and he was sort of yelling this <laughs> this thing at the top of his lungs, and he was just going. Buzz, buzz, buzzing like a barfly. This just came to me in my car, you guys. Buzz, buzz, buzzing <laughs> like a barfly. And I went, oh, my God, okay, okay, I guess that's what we're going to write. And he said, don't you see how that would be? You'd be in a bar, and, and there'd, be, there'd be this, you know, this, this sense of the neon lights. Can you see it? And, he, and they jumped right in, and, and they said, here, do you want a guitar? And let's write. And so oh this was, I, I sort of, I was very sort of intimidated. And, you know, over about, after about an hour, I felt that I found my feet under me and I could, 
I could start to, you know, really get into the energy that they brought to it. But it was a very different kind of writing, and I actually enjoyed it. It showed me, well, you know, it showed me that if I want to compete on that level, I've got to go after it harder. And they told me that if they're not in their project studio, every day at 10 a.m., someone rings their doorbell. It's a co-write ready to go. And so those guys in in Nashville, those songwriters these days who are, you know, the pros are writing a hundred songs a year and, you know, pitching them out. So I'm just painting a little picture of what I know of sort of the professional songwriter these days in that world. Well, yeah. And, and I think that's really important, Sue, that you bring that up because that's exactly what I was going at. I mean, throughout this whole radio show, I'm always trying to explain to people there is so much more to being an artist than just either writing a song or playing a song because it's like a whole lifestyle and you have to decide if this is the life for you. And that's a perfect example. It's like, mm-hmm. do you want to be serious about being a songwriter? Okay, move to Nashville. Yeah. Make it so that every single day at 10 a.m. Yes. you have to start writing a song. Right. I mean, like, be super realistic. Or, I mean, I just had a friend call me and say, I'm moving to L.A. to become a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, there you go. And I was like, wow, this is out of left field. And she's like, yeah, but I'm serious about being a songwriter, so I have to go to L.A. because that's where I'm going to get work. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. I mean, I was like, wow, way to be totally businesslike about this. This is – that's exactly how to – you know, you can't stay home and be like – I hope somebody calls me and says, hey, do you have any great songs? I know. Isn't that true? I think we all wish that would happen. You know, we wish that people would send us emails and, and write to us and say, what, what songs have you written? Can, you, can we please have them? And that doesn't happen. Or, you know, people will say, well, I, I do write songs, and I, but I'm, and I'm out. You know, I do uh, open mics or I give my song to someone who doesn't open mic. And, and that's fine. I think that's a great way to start to get performance chops if you do want to be a performing artist. But the ones who really say, I have a plan, so I'm going to write really, really good songs. And how do you write a good song, by the way? You write a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yep. and you allow yourself to write bad ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't want to say they're bad, but, but as we start to say, gosh, I've, look, I've written 10 songs, you kind of know which ones are the ones that thrill you. You're like, I, I think I've got something here, and the other ones might fall away. But you write a lot, and you're prolific, and then you say, well, let's say that I have, let's say I have 30 songs, and now, in a year and a half, I'm going to go and become a songwriter. And, and I know that to do that, unless I have a lot, of, a lot of contacts in the music industry in my hometown of Iowa City, I need to move to Nashville or, you know, to L.A. or possibly New York. Absolutely. That's such a great... Go get it. Yeah, exactly. That's such a great point. And, and I'm glad that you're saying it because I want as many people to hear that as possible. And I think one of the interesting things is I do believe that people thought in the beginning of the Internet that the Internet was going to do that work for them, mm-hmm. that they were going to also be able to sit home And just, they're like, well, look, I wrote songs and I put them up on the internet and now people can hear my songs. And guess what we found out? So what? You just drop it into the void of the internet and it just goes away. You have to still That's for sure. Or the noise of the internet, internet, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Everybody's out there. And I think there are a lot of people who feel that they will be discovered on SoundCloud or Bandcamp or what have you. And some people are, but that's really not enough just to post your music. No, you have to hustle. And that's why, mm-hmm. you know, people who give the example of like, oh, well, 
this person is, you know, became famous and got signed to a record deal just from posting YouTube videos. Right. And I always say, yeah, go back and look at how many YouTube videos they posted. They posted one a day. That's right. For like three years. And then they eventually had enough followers that Sony was like, oh, we'll get a piece of that action. You know? Right. <laughs> if you've got right. six no, million exactly viewers, right. like, of course. Yes. Sure. They already did that work for them, but that's they right. were the ones doing the work. They did that work. They did. They did that work. And, and there's no doubt that if you are aimed at major label deal there those people are out there trolling aren't they i mean they're looking for they're out there looking at their databases and they're looking at who's got some heat around them who's generating how many views i mean you know unfortunately it's to me it's like is that what you have to do but it is what you have to do Mm -hmm. and you will be found i really believe that you will be found if you put that the kind of effort we're talking about into this kind of single-minded go for it spirit that's what happens. And, you know, it's good to have some talent. But if you, you know you, if you have talent, because people around you tell you and they respond to what you have. And so that should be enough to give you some confidence to get going if you're just, if you're a, you know, typical introvert, as many of us are in the art world. You know, just some encouragement, I think, will get you going. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually can do this and I believe in it and I'm going to put the effort into it. So I also would just like to say, I think for people just starting out to get that break, if you can find somebody, a human, (laughs) to (laughs) mentor you in some way, to give you some points, to give you some direction, tell you what to avoid, you know, I think that is a really great way to really jumpstart yourself, to get someone who kind of wants to give back and recognizes your talent and maybe they don't, they don't, you don't even hire them, but they sort of take you under their wing and say, yeah, you know what, this, this bridge needs a rewrite. What do you think about that? Go mm-hmm. edit that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a, a great thing to find if, if you can. And that's, you know, that's an interesting, I mean, I feel like we could, we don't have a ton of time, so I don't want to just talk about this for hours, even though I want to talk about this for hours. I know I do too. I love talking about this. But this is, you know, this is for me such an interesting question, that interesting question in creativity about when do you allow someone else to help you and have some input? And when do Mm. you say, no, I really believe in this bridge or I really believe in this, you know, chorus or or whatever, you know, this is my artistic vision and yeah. this is how I want it to be. Yeah. Because that, I mean, there's just so many sides to that coin. And, and I feel like what we were talking about earlier with the 19 songwriters is a really great example. You know, my husband always says that the more people involved in a creative project, the, the farther towards the middle yeah. that project gets. Yes. In other words, because there has to be consensus, so you're necessarily going to be, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but making it more appealing to the most, the largest number of people, right? Yeah, maybe watering it down, you right. know, it just in some way. It, that's right, because, you, yeah, you're aiming at the broadest appeal possible. Exactly, exactly. Taking the edges off, <laughs> making that's it right. making it the most appealing possible. And that's, I think, you know, that's always a, good, a big question mark because, yeah, you can sell four million copies of that single because it appeals to more people. But at the same time, you always have to ask yourself, well, what could this song have been if 19 people didn't work on it? I know. Yeah. I know. It just That would be a fun exercise to do. Yeah. <laughs> right, to yeah. look at a song before the 19 people got before, involved. <laughs> yeah. And go, actually, there was something really beautiful here. <laughs> yeah. And now it's kind of some kind of um, concoction, you know. So. Right, right. 
Oh my gosh. Well, Sue Ennis, I could talk to you forever, but I we do have to stop sometime. And and I do appreciate having you so much. Sue Ennis is a writer and a composer and a teacher and an awesome person. Sue, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? What a great pleasure. Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Dirt by Ganny, Thoroughbred, Two-Ton Boa, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>